Good morning. Well, as I said, I'm Pastor Dan. I'm, I get to, the privilege and the honor to be the youth pastor here and the first person to preach on a new stage. Woo! Still in their construction, so I just think it's fun. You know, like, the youth pastor gets the first opportunity to be able to preach on the stage. It's like, if anything goes wrong, it's my fault, you know? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a team decision. We were all excited for this change, and we're just, this is really just awesome, seeing the church come together to be a part of this. But we recognize that change is, is hard. Change is difficult. Some people love change. They want change every single day, every single month. But it's, it's difficult for most of us, I think we would say. Um, and so, like, this, is, this isn't any different because I work with teenagers. Um, and you would think change, they're like, they love it. You know, like, give me something new every day. Let's go out to eat a different place. You know, like, whatever. But, you know, on Wednesday nights when they're here, they sit with their same group of friends. They sit in the same seats just like you do. Okay, they, they don't like change. Like, that's a lie. You know, all, all of us have this idea that, that, that change is bad and that all change is bad, but that's not exactly true. And so kind of like the segue into this as, as we get ready is that change, we all experience it, and we're going to see that in a moment. But I want to ask you and invite you to be a part of the change within the lives of our students, within the lives of our teenagers, because next weekend we're taking a trip to upstate New York where we're going to be doing snow camp with about, I don't know how many other students, a lot. It looks like it's going to be like 200 other students there where we spend time having a lot of fun playing games, obviously doing snow activities and stuff like that, um, but then also spending time in God's word. And so my prayer is that all of our students, we, as we go, obviously safety, that's, an, that's a big priority, um, but the other one is, is that we would come back more in love with God than we went. And, and come back more in love with God than ever before. So that's my prayer. So just as we, before we get started, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to pray for just this blessed time as we get into God's word, but then also for next week, and that God would already start preparing those 31 teenagers that we're taking up to upstate New York. So let's just pray together as we get started. God, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to bring your word today, to be able to study it together, to learn from it, to learn from you, but God, we recognize that, that you are working in our lives, and we ask, Lord Jesus, you would do that today, and we also ask that you would work in our future next week as we take students. Lord, we pray for safety, but then also, Lord, life change. Lord, may you be working in the hearts of these students as we prepare to go, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we recognize that everyone experiences change, okay? It's the stage experiences change, teenagers, you do. We all experience change. Well, the disciples right now are about ready to really experience some change. And the further along we get in our study, the closer we are getting to Jesus Christ going to the cross. And so Jesus is explaining some, announcing some pretty significant changes that are going to be taking place. And these are things that he's brought up before, things that he's announced to the disciples before, but that you, we're going to see that they still have no clue on what's going on. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at that. But in context, I just want to invite you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 16. We're going to be looking at chapter 16, verse 16, for starters. And if you don't have a Bible, there is a pew Bible right there in front of you. should be a little black Bible there, and then that's page 902 if you would like to turn there. But just to give you some context, okay, in the, the, the Gospel of John, the first 12 chapters are really covering the entirety of the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus. What's amazing, though, is these, these next 
couple of chapters, chapter 13 to where we are now, 16, and even to the end of 17, it's covering, these five chapters are covering just a few short hours from Jesus in the upper room having uh, the Last Supper with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. This is really just a few hours. These five chapters cover just a few hours of their life. And this is Jesus comforting and giving them assurance, but really preparing them for the ministry that is to come for them. Because really, in the next 24 hours, Jesus is going to die on the cross. That's a big change. And especially if they have no idea. They've kind of heard these clues, but they didn't know what they meant. So let's pick up in verse 16. You can follow along with me as we read that together. But let me just read it. It says, In a little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this? that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? They kind of get the point, right? No, they're still questioning this, okay? As it says, we do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, this, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Okay, so we understand it's a little while, and we're not going to see Jesus. Um, They say it a ton of times, right? But it's a riddle. And so we're we're introduced to this riddle. Jesus uses a riddle to kind of like emphasize this point that change is coming. And Jesus gives a negative prediction followed by a positive promise. So this negative prediction is, in a little while, you will no longer see me. Now, the disciples are kind of like, what does this mean? A little while you will not see me, in a little while you will see me. I envision being a disciple and going, are we playing hide and seek? You know, um, peekaboo, in a little while you don't see me and you see me. Like, we just have no idea. And, you know, it's easy for us at this point, you know, in our life to be able to say, looking at scriptures, like, how do you not see this? How do you not see that Jesus is going to the cross? How do you not see that they're, they're living in present time? It's easy for us to look at it at the, and looking back and read and see the context, right? But in everyday life, we don't see what's going to happen in the future, so neither do they. And so we kind of have to have some sympathy for them, but really that's where we're at right now. And so when Jesus is saying, you will see me no longer, he's predicting that he's going to be dead soon and in the grave. Thus, you are not going to see me. But then Jesus has shared this multiple times with his disciples over the course of their ministry, and also this, that he was going to rise again. And this is that positive promise, you will see me again. And Jesus is promising that he's going to rise from the dead. And I just have a couple verses just to show you, these are just a few out of many, that Jesus was telling his disciples and his followers that he was going to die and rise from the dead. First one, John 3, 14 through 16, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 10, verse 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in John 10, 17, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. See, Jesus cares very much for these disciples, and his desire is to bring them along on this journey, on this change that is going to take place. But at the same time, he's not sharing with them every single detail, because he doesn't want them to be overwhelmed 
by everything that is going to take place. Sometimes life is hard when we don't understand what is going to happen. I was thinking back over this thought when it's hard to think about what's going to happen and you don't know what's going on. Um, a couple years ago, about five years ago now, I can still remember going fishing with Pastor Mike, and our conversation turned to things about the church. And so we started talking back and forth, and I can still remember talking about, what are we going to do when Pastor Terry retires? And for those of you who don't know, um, Pastor Terry was the lead pastor here for over 10 years, and we had sat under his leadership and have, had benefited from his, his leadership, and, and now there was talks of a transition and of his retirement, and so we're kind of freaking out, okay, and we're, we're talking back and forth going, what are we going to do? And I can still, to this day, remember where I was standing, and I can remember what I said. I said, I don't even want to think about it. Like, I would just much rather fish, obviously. But at the same time, it was like, I, it's just overwhelming to me to think about what was going to happen. Because I didn't know the future. We didn't know what was going to have happen. We didn't know how a transition would take. We didn't know what God was going to do. We didn't know how our roles would shift. We didn't know any of that stuff. But what I was reminded by it was that by God's grace and his wisdom, Pastor Terry and the elders led us through one of the most seamless, healthy, God-honoring transitions that this church has ever seen. And we praise God for that. Yes. We praise God for that. But we didn't, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know how it was going to pan out, so to speak. But we, we did know and we, we did hold on to with these two things is that God is holy, which means he doesn't make mistakes. He is righteous and, and, and just, and, and he's holy, he's perfect. We held on to that, and then we all held on to the fact that God had called us to love and serve him. And in holding on to those two things, we went forward. We made decisions, we went forward, we worked together as a team, and praise God, it worked. And so that's what the disciples are, are learning right now, is there are core values that they need to hold on to. There are promises that Jesus is making here and that Jesus is trying to communicate to them. He's not communicating every detail. He's communicating the important ones that they need to hold on to. I think an application from this that we can take is, is, is we, don't, we shouldn't get upset when we don't understand what Jesus is doing in our life. That one's hard. Okay? We need to not get upset when we don't understand what Jesus is doing in our life, but instead we need to choose to pursue Christ in the midst of the confusion. In verse 19, Jesus recognizes their confusion, and he chooses to explain a little bit more in detail. They still don't get it, but he chooses to explain with a graphic illustration that they will never forget. And so let's look at that today. Okay, Verse 20 to 22. Says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for the joy of that human being born has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
I love Jesus and how he's able to communicate so clearly with examples and illustrations. And he, he's concerned. He wants them to understand. And so he gives them an ex, explanation of this joy. And he calls it endless joy. So this riddle is explained. And it kind of does like this bad news, good news kind of like deal. Bad news, okay? You're going to cry. You're going to lament. You're going to be sad. And the whole world is going to rejoice. Sounds like a great time, right? But, he says, like, in a little while, you're going to see me again. The good news is, is that your sorrow will turn into joy. Joy that no one can take away. Joy that is endless. That's good news. And that beats out the bad news, right? Um, but he says this, and then he also says, oh, and it's kind of like a pregnant lady. And I just love his illustrations just to, like, help concrete those things in our minds. But, like, no woman going into pregnancy is... So excited to be pregnant, okay? My wife, we were always excited for the result, right? For the baby. But like, no, I I still haven't met a woman that's like, yes, I'm so excited to be pregnant and be uncomfortable and have these weird food cravings and have to dip my pickles in peanut butter and do all these things and not fit in my clothes anymore and just be uncomfortable and mood swings and no. Nobody looks forward to that. And that's what Jesus is bringing up. No one is looking forward to the pain of childbirth and all the things that come with it. And fun thing is I've had the chance to obviously experience that with um, Dana and us and our three kids. Um, And I could probably tell you a little bit of story about all of them. Um, You know, Abby came early, six days early. And uh, so we call her early Abby. And I just think it's funny because, like, her personality is very, like, I'm going to be early. I'm going to be on time. I color within the lines, you know? She's very rigid that way. And then there's Take My Time Michaela, who's like, I'm going to come a couple days late and uh, surprise you. And my, I'm just free, you know, very free-spirited, you know, carefree, whatever. So it kind of concerns me when, like, their birth is very much attributed to their personality. Because Noah, the only thing I can come up with him is he's Noah the storm baby. And I would like to explain that to you and why. Um, August 17th, Dana goes into labor with Noah. So we go to the hospital. We're like, all right, we're going to go. And it's typical, you know, procedures, stuff like that. We get in there. Labor stops. Like, contractions completely go away, like, as soon as they put the monitor on. And it's like, okay, no. And so they discharge us. They say, okay, you're just going to have to go home because you can't stay here. You know, and so we go home. As soon as we go home, guess what happens? Contractions start back up again, and uh, she goes back into labor. So we're like, all right, so we don't look like idiots. All right, let's wait here for like half an hour. That was scary because there was a lot of pain inflicted on that 30 minutes. And so then we're like, all right, we got to go. For the sake of looking like we don't know what we're doing, this is our third kid, we're still going to go. One mile away from our home, on the way to the hospital, Dana informs me that the baby is coming now. And I'm like, no. (laughs) Not having a baby in my truck. Not happening. Thankfully, though, a storm had just blown through and knocked all the power out. All the lights were down. I got to the hospital in record time. Pull in, park right in front of the emergency exit, legal parking spot, whatever. I jump out. We get in the hospital. Less than 30 minutes later, Noah's born. Thank God. We got to the hospital. 
Now, I say all that to say this, because when I remember holding Noah after all my pain and all my suffering and all of that was over, <laughs> and Dana's, um, I remember holding Noah, looking out over a very dark Scranton, you know, because the power was still out, and holding Noah and watching another th thunderstorm coming through, and just having all the joy in the world. Like, not having a, a worry or really a fear, because it was over. No one was here. And it, what I find amazing, and Jesus uses this explanation, and it, it, it's no coincidence, but in an instant, the cause of greatest human suffering becomes the occasion of our greatest joy. And it's, like I said, it's no coincidence Jesus uses this example of child pain, childbirth pain, um, to talk about the sorrow that the disciples were going to be feeling these next couple days. Because think about it, the childbirth pain, that's, that's as a result of the fall. That's a curse of sin. And in the same way, in the result, um, Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross, which is a result of sin. It is because of sin that I'm going to the cross. It is because of sin that you will not see me, but then you will see me again. And he's referring to the greatest suffering of all, that Jesus is going to die on the cross for the sins of the entire world. And in the same way, like the cross and childbirth, the place of greatest suffering became the occasion of greatest joy. Jesus is that perfect payment for our sins. Nothing else can take away that sin. Nothing else can remove that sin but Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection is, is the proof that we need that death is defeated, that that part of this sin curse, that separation from God can be removed in Jesus by grace through faith. This is why he came. So that just in childbirth pain, like after the pain comes the reward. And the reward is endless joy because it's Jesus. Now, in verse 22, he says, so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take it from you. You see, this difference is this joy, though, is rooted within our hearts, something that God has done within. It is the forgiveness of our sins. It is the eternal life. It is the promise that he has given to us. And this, no one can take away. Not the ever-changing circumstances, not our happiness. None of that can inflict or take away the joy that we have in Jesus. And the one thing that I would have for us to remember, if you're going to remember one thing, is this, is that true and endless joy is found in the work and word of Jesus. The work and word of Jesus. We're looking right now at the work of Jesus, him dying on the cross for our sins. And if we have accepted that as, as truth, if we believed in him as our Lord and Savior, then we have that joy, that joy that no one can take away. Now, Jesus here is referring to his death and resurrection, but this, this principle really does apply to us because it's only through Jesus that through sorrow we can find joy. We all are going to suffer things because of the curse of sin. That is still evident. That is still within each of our lives. We recognize that. We see that in our day-to-day -day lives. But those things that come into our life, those sins or the, just the curse of sin, the things that steal our happiness are circumstances. You know, you can be happy and driving along and have a fender bender and immediately the good day's gone, you know? 
where you need to work on that paper and your Wi-Fi, gone. You know, and it's, I'm not saying that's necessarily a curse of sin, but I mean that's just a result of life. But like there's all these other things that steal our, our happiness. Bad relationships, broken relationships, bullying, loss of jobs, poor health reports, and even the loss of loved ones. All of these create suffering for us, create hard times for us. But what Jesus is saying here is that endless joy can't be taken away because it's in Jesus. If we remember the fact that Jesus died for me, and no one can take that away, that changes things. If we remember that Jesus loves me, and there's nothing that anyone can do that can separate me from his love, that changes things. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm just going to put a little paraphrase in there, but it says, for I am sure that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this is that promise that he's giving to his disciples and this principle that we can be applying to ourselves as well. See, joy can be held if we are believers in Christ. True joy can be held. But then he goes on to talk about something really amazing to me and something that I was learning and growing more in this, this past week is this idea of full joy. He says, endless joy is from having me. But then he says, but there's full joy. Let's look at that. Verse 23, <clears throat> excuse me, to 24. He says, in that day, you will, not, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of, of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. Now, this, we see, is the method of full joy, the method to receiving this full joy. And Jesus, once again, gives a prediction and a promise. And here we see a prediction that you will ask nothing of me. And what he's referring to is he's saying, I am going to the Father. This is different than but just before when he said, in a little while you will not see me, in a little while you will see me. This is different. He's saying, no, in, in that day you will ask nothing of me because he's talking about his ascension to the Father. He's talking about going back to heaven. And obviously you can't ask things of Jesus if he's not physically there. And so that's what he's referring to, that he's going back to heaven, going back to the Father. But he does leave the disciples a very powerful promise. He says that if you ask in my name, it will be given. And if you ask in this way, your joy will be full. And I just think this is amazing. This is a complex thought just to go into. But the disciples really needed to hear this. They needed to hear this. Why? Because they were feeling frustrated, confused, scared, alone, unsure, like their world was just flipped upside down, and they're going to experience that more and more over the next couple days. But in this, they needed to know that Jesus was returning to the Father, but the Father would meet their needs through prayer. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Because most of us pray in Jesus' name, right? And when we stop and we pray and we thank for our food, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We always tagline the end of our, our conversations with God in Jesus' name. And I think this is probably where it got stemmed from, where we started doing that from this passage. But we need to understand a little bit better, what does this mean? Because not everything I pray for, I get a yes. And so that bothers me when Jesus says, hey, anything you ask in my name is going to be given. That bothers me. Now, as we look to this, I um, read a book a couple of years ago called um, How to Pray. 
by R.A. Torrey. If you haven't gotten a chance to read this book, it's a nice book, it's a smaller book, which I appreciate because sometimes when you pick up like something like this and it's like, bah, like, oh man, there's a lot of stuff here. And you need that. But this one is, is a pretty easy read and it's a great read. Um, but he actually has a chapter in his book and it's, and it's titled Praying in Jesus' Name. I'm like, I think that's where I want to go. I think that's where, I, his illustration um, really helps tie down the point for me and I just wanted to share it with you. He shares this in his book. He says, if I go to a bank, if I go to my bank with a, with a withdrawal slip, with money that I well, write an amount, with a withdrawal slip, and I, and I submit that to my bank, should I have the money in the bank, they will give it to me. Now, if I go to a different bank with a withdrawal slip, say for $500, just to throw out a number, okay, but it's not my bank, and I give that withdrawal slip to them, they're going to return to me and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Dan, but you have no money here. So we cannot cash your withdrawal slip. But now he says, now if I go to that bank with a check made payable to me from a person within that bank who is a contributor there, they will not question whether I have money in that bank or whether I have money in any bank, but rather based upon the name on the check and that they have money in that bank, they will give me that, that they will get me that money. And so basically what he was saying in this, in this chapter, he's saying, when I go to God in prayer, it is like going to the bank of heaven. See, we have no credit in heaven by our name, but Jesus Christ has ultimate credit in heaven. And so he has granted us the privilege of going to the bank with his name signed to the checks. So in short, Jesus is... Praying in Jesus' name is not like a tagline at the end of your prayer just to get whatever you want, but rather it's asking that, asking for God to do what he wants in my life. Just previous to this, okay, in John 14, verse 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. That is praying in Jesus' name. When we pray in Jesus' name, it is for his will to be done that he would be glorified in any and all circumstances. And this is what he means by in Jesus' name. Now, he encourages his disciples to take advantage of this opportunity of praying in his name, of asking of him, so that they may experience the fullness of him and the fullness of his joy. Now, that word fullness, when you look up its definition, it has this idea of crammed, packed. Like a kid trying to pack a suitcase, and they're trying to get everything in it. I used to um, work at a summer camp up in New York, Christian summer camp, and every Saturday was luggage day. Every Saturday, we would go over to the mainland. The camp that I worked at was an, a Christian camp on an island, so we actually had to go over to mainland with school buses and gather up their luggage, put it on a, a, a barge, a ferry, and take it over to the island and then unload it. It was a lot of extra work, but it was a lot of fun. And so every Saturday was luggage day, and we'd go over and we'd greet the campers, and like they bring their luggage, and they would switch us up because they had a guy's bus and they had a girl's bus. It was so funny because like the girl's bus at the end of the day, it's like stuff coming out the windows, and we had a floor-to-ceiling packed, and the guy's bus, it's like half full. It's like the same amount of campers, you know, and 
Sometimes you just, you'd be working the girls' bus, and you'd be helping the girls with their luggage, get it onto the bus, and load it up. And I remember this one time, this girl, like 80 pounds, okay, had 150 pounds worth of luggage, you know, and she's taking it over to the bus, to the point where one of the suitcases that she had had like her dad's belt wrapped around it because the zipper was completely broken, duct tape around the rest of it. It's like, packing for your friends, are you? <laughs> you know, it's like, you're a really generous person bringing all this stuff for your friends. No, she had three, you know, outfits for the day or whatever each day. Um, meanwhile, the other guys, you know, sometimes, this is gross, I don't recommend this, but like guys would come up for the whole week like, hey, here you go, my backpack. It's like, that was all they had. <laughs> okay. But it's very different. But Jesus is saying this. He says, I want you to have that kind of joy that you cannot even contain all of it. I want you to take advantage of this opportunity. I want you to just be overflowing with full joy. And that is met, and that how you do that is in prayer. I don't want he 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 wants them to be equipped. He wants them to be ready. He wants them to have everything they need for what is to come. And I found this quote from Tony Evans. I just want to share it with you. It says, there is nothing like the joy that comes when the creator of the universe answers your personal prayer. There's nothing like the joy of God the Father answering your prayer. So if you haven't taken advantage of praying, I encourage you to do so. And maybe you don't know what that even looks like. That's okay. Jesus does, okay, and and can understand um, even what you might call a silly prayer. But just going back to the one thing, true and endless joy is found in the work and word of Jesus Christ. Here we're focusing on the word. This is the promise that when we pray in Jesus' name that he would be glorified, he answers that prayer. And the application for this is we just need to pray more. We need to pray more in Jesus' name. We need to pray more that God would be glorified in and through our life and through our circumstances. I can remember praying now 10 years ago. Um, I was in upstate New York. I had found an opportunity to be able to serve and have a ministry and have a job. And I was excited um, at this opportunity. And I I was sure that God was going to bless it because I'm doing what he wants. I'm going to be serving him. And I was praying that God would open this position. And he did. And I'm praying that God would give me that position. And that was my plan. Well, it was a very behind-the-scenes position. It was a very, you know, hands-on, working with my hands, being a maintenance guy at a camp and at, at, at a Christian organization. I was super excited about it. But you know what's interesting? God said no. And I'm like, ah, I was broken. I was crushed. The thing that I'd been praying for in Jesus' name, a lot, he said no. I didn't understand. I didn't know why. But now looking back 10 years... If God didn't say no, then, then I wouldn't be here. You know, and it's just, it's just wow. And I'm, I'm amazed that I'm here, that God has brought me here and what he's done in and through those 10 years. And I never would have seen that. You see, we have a very limited scope to look to see what was only right here in front of us. And what we perceive is to honor and glorify God in this time. But God ultimately knows what's best. And so somebody said, somebody smarter than me has said this. This is not an original quote, and I can't remember whose it is. But he says, when God says no, it's because he has something greater than yes. When God says no, it's because he has something greater than yes. And there is a trust there. We do need to trust him with that. 
So as we wrap up, I just have a couple conclusions, a couple applications, if you will, from these verses that I think that we can apply. Okay, first one, don't be upset when you don't understand what Jesus is doing in your life. That's a hard one. Because typically when we don't understand what Jesus is doing in our life, and we typically blame him and we ignore him. When really, we need to turn to him and get closer to him and spend more time with him. And how we do that? We spend time in the Bible. And please, I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible that you do not understand um, the translation, there are other translations out there. We encourage you to get a Bible that you can understand, um, that is easier to read. We encourage you to do that. And ask questions. And when I say ask questions, please don't just like put it up on like a blog forum and have everybody like respond to you, okay? Like rather find trusted people who aren't going to belittle you by asking questions. If someone is, is you're asking them spiritual questions and they're like, duh, don't talk to that person. Don't go to them for advice. Go to somebody who's going to walk you through your questions and be able to help you. And the other thing I would encourage you to do is surround yourself with godly people. That's why life groups is so important, spending time with other people doing life. Because if you isolate yourself, when water is isolated in a, in a place, what does it become? It becomes a stagnant puddle. But rather, when it is incorporated with other moving water, it is, it is fresh, it is clean. And so we want to encourage everybody to be a part of life groups because that's how we give life, we're able to encourage each other and grow in our walk with God. The other thing I would say is, uh, from this text is, is we will experience sorrow. You need to know that. Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you're a Christian, sorrow is just gone. Hard times are just gone. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, though, that we can have joy in the sorrow. We, but we need to remember his work. Remember what he did. Remember the cross. Remember his love. You know, and I can remember when we uh, first found out we were pregnant with Abby, and we knew nothing about, you know, pregnancy and everything and all that stuff. And so the most traumatic experience for me was actually going to the Lamaze classes that Dana dragged me to. And uh, that was hard. But like, I remember being in those classes and they were teaching you how to breathe. And at first I kind of laughed. But like, no, for real, it's super helpful because like when you're going through labor, um, I need to know how to breathe so I don't pass out, you know? And she needed to know how to breathe so she didn't pass out. She's got an important job to do. And I have one too. Get my hand crushed, you know? So, um, but I just remember, like, they had you memorize this method to breathe. And they had you memorize all these other things that you needed to know. You need to memorize the route to get to the hospital. You needed to memorize these things. And you know what? Memory is important. In a day and age where technology really helps us, and we can say, okay, Google, um, your phones are all lighting up. Oh, sorry. Um, you know, we can ask the internet anything, and uh, they can, it can tell us, and we don't have to remember anything. But the truth of the matter is when we memorize God's word, we're able to internalize it in our heart. Then it is ready for when we are going through hard times. Then we are ready um, to experience hardship and be ready to be able to handle it and have joy. So I just have a couple verses up on the screen, ones that I've picked out of the, the Gospel of John. And the great thing is, is that you can pick any verse that you really want out of the entire Bible that deals with something you're dealing with, that deals with these things. Internalize it in your heart. These are just ones that we've talked about through the course of our time in John. John 1.12, where Jesus um, says that um, to those, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And that's why he came. Um, John 3.16, very popular verse, where we see Jesus' work in salvation and the point of his coming. 
uh, Jesus 10, 10 and 11, that you may have life and have it to the full. And also, I am the good shepherd. We need to be reminded, don't we, that Jesus is a good shepherd. He knows what he's doing. He's God. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus offers resurrection from the dead. This is eternal life with Jesus. And then also John 14, 2, where Jesus talks about preparing a place for us with him in heaven, specifically near him. This is awesome things, and this is just, just a portion of things you could memorize to keep close to your heart as you go through hard times, trials, and other things like that. And the last thing I would say is this, is fill your joy by praying in Jesus' name. Fill your joy by praying in Jesus' name. And if you haven't done so, if you've never tried this before, I'm going to say it. Create a prayer journal, okay? Have a a binder or a book or note cards or something that you can pray about specific things each day. And watch what happens. Do that for a while. Keep it with your devotions. And just watch what happens. Allow that to be able to be a means to which God gives you joy. And at this time, I just want to invite the praise team uh, to come on up front as we wrap up our service today in this time in the Gospel of John in chapter 16. These passages of Scripture Jesus is using just as a reminder um, in preparation for the disciples about ready to go out and do the work of the ministry after Jesus' death and resurrection and then ascension. But you know what? The disciples never could have imagined how their lives were going to be transformed by this next few hours. They never could have imagined the part that they were going to play in the gospel, the part that they were going to play in changing people's lives as they started the church. And we are an evidence of that. And I just think, now imagine with me if how awesome it would be to just own and have that full joy knowing that no matter the circumstances, no matter the conflict, no matter the sorrow that sin brings from the curse of sin into our life, that we can still have that joy. And I just invite us to be able to recognize we're going to experience sorrow, but in Jesus that we can find true and perfect and endless joy. So I hope that was your encouragement from the word of God today, and I just want to pray over you right now as we close. God, I just thank you once again for your word, how you did not leave us in the dark. Lord, I am also thankful that you don't give us every single detail. You allow us the opportunity to trust you, to ask of you. Lord, I pray that we would pray more in your name for your glory to be done in this world, so that your glory to be done in our suffering, in our hardships, in our experiences, whether good or bad. And Lord, I pray that we would experience your unending, your untouchable joy today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.